0: Welcome to the fifth session in this eight-part introduction to Indigenous Relations in BC. So, with the background from the first four sessions in the series in mind, let's talk about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Calls to Action. I think of the articles of the UN Declaration as providing broad strategic direction, and the calls as specific tactics. Of course, that's simplistic, because the calls do include some higher-level strategic statements. Let's start with the UN Declaration. It provides for the recognition of Indigenous peoples' rights to their lands and natural resources, and the observation of their treaty rights. Now, arguably, the provincial and federal governments are already making progress with that. The UN Declaration also requires countries to consult with Indigenous peoples with the goal of obtaining their consent on matters that concern them consultation is nothing new in BC. The challenge comes with the phrase free, prior, and informed consent, especially in two articles. Article 19 requires states to obtain Indigenous peoples' free, prior, and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. And from Article 32 on resource issues, states must obtained indigenous peoples free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories and other resources, particularly in connection with the development, utilization, or exploitation of mineral, water, or other resources. Some people wonder why governments would allow a small percentage of the population to have such control over natural resources and public policy. And to be clear, both the provincial and federal governments are not legally bound by UN declarations. So why have successive provincial and federal governments acknowledged the need to address Aboriginal rights and title? Well, even if you could set aside the ethical and moral reasons for respecting the rights of Indigenous peoples, there are powerful legal and economic reasons for doing so. Earlier in this series, we talked about court decisions that protected Aboriginal rights and found Aboriginal title. Major natural resource projects have been delayed or canceled because of court challenges and decisions. Products and whole industries have been boycotted internationally to support indigenous interests. Investors require certainty. Investors look at a province or country that's in turmoil, see risk, and take their money elsewhere. Whether we like it or not, economies depend on investment. It's a political imperative even if the party in power isn't specifically sympathetic to indigenous issues. Having said that, the previous BC government described the UN Declaration as aspirational, largely consistent with the new relationship commitments. However, the current BC government has committed to adoption of the Declaration, and because of that, has been vilified for apparently dismissing First Nations opposition to controversial natural resource projects. Canada has spoken to incorporating elements of it into the context of the Constitution Act and other legislation and policies. Neither government, though, has explicitly supported the idea that the consent mentioned in the declaration creates a veto. A quick side story. A few years ago, the Institute for Research on Public Policy asked me to speak at a roundtable on free prior and informed consent. In preparing for it, I reread the confidence and supply agreement between the BC Greens and the New Democrats and its language about supporting the adoption of the UN Declaration. I'll admit that my first reaction had been to wonder if they had any idea how challenging that would be. My second reaction was to think that the parties probably only saw two options. They'd either default to a minimalist interpretation, to seek but not necessarily obtain consent relying on their arguably vague adoption language and reference to principles. Or they'd embark on a program to amend and create legislation to codify the concept of consent and fundamentally change consultation and decision processes across government. The provincial government has since clarified that it intends to do the latter and has passed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. The act was developed in collaboration with the First Nations Leadership Council, which is made up of representatives from the First Nations Summit, the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs, and the B.C. Assembly of First Nations. The Act provides a framework for implementing the UN Declaration and requires the provincial government to take all necessary steps to implement it. I think it's important to point out that the Act is a promise to take action, not substantive action in itself. To move forward, I'll suggest that it's critical to reach foundational agreement on a functional definition and process to reach consent. And that won't be easy. Influential analysts like Roshan Dinesh and Jason Talkman are clear that there's an important difference between consent and veto. Consent, by their definition, would be more akin to consensus than approval. It would be essential for there to be deep consultation, but it wouldn't give First Nations a veto. And I understand that for First Nations leader and lawyer Judith Sayers and others, veto is an essential component of consent. And my apologies to Judith and, well, everyone for that oversimplification. At this point, it appears likely that the federal and provincial governments will propose increased collaboration and consultation with First Nations as a negotiated alternative to the politically challenging potential for veto. Now, Would it be better to reach a negotiated agreement before litigation eventually drives a court decision that will inevitably be subject to interpretation and probably not entirely satisfactory to anyone? You bet. Now, let's talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada calls to action. The commission heard testimony from over 6,000 residential school survivors across Canada. The report it released in 2015 details their experiences the abuses they suffered, and the impact they still have. The 94 calls to action that were one outcome of the process are explicitly meant to, and I'll quote, redress the legacy of residential schools and advance the process of Canadian reconciliation. There are specific recommendations in a number of areas, including child welfare, education, justice, and health. The report is particularly useful because it's structured so that governments and agencies and organizations can easily identify the recommendations that apply to their mandate. It's positive and forward-looking in a time of conflict and uncertainty. It's pretty clear that whatever political party is in power, provincially or federally, the UN Declaration and the calls will shape Indigenous relations in BC for many years. All right. In the next session, I'll spend just a few minutes of your time describing the BC Treaty process and other intergovernmental agreements that take many years to negotiate. I'm Peter Walters. Thank you for listening.